from KIOS Omaha and Exarbon Creative. You're listening to our premiere episode of Riverside Chats, the show that highlights all the fascinating people right here in our community through hour-long conversations that really help you get to know them. Today, I have a conversation with Congressman Don Bacon, recorded prior to government social distancing efforts in response to the COVID-19 virus outbreak. Norway, Finland, Sweden, perhaps, and some of those countries, they're really, a, they're more of a welfare state, but they're definitely capitalist. Those aren't socialist countries. They're welfare, heavy welfare countries. There's a difference. They're driven by capitalism and free markets. Bacon discusses his life from growing up on a farm to his time in the military and eventually making the transition to Congress. We also discuss that pesky word socialism and the way assumptions about the word play such a big part in the current race. So please, after this quick break, enjoy my conversation with Don Bacon on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those of you who are already listening on Stitcher, you get it. Those of you who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode. I got a notification this morning saying that Stitcher had made me a personal playlist that I can listen to while in social isolation. I have all sorts of things to binge because they made it for me. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Do you like comedy? You can listen to exclusive archives from Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marin, How Did This Get Made, or bonus episodes from Office Ladies, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. So go to stitcher.com premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and please enjoy this conversation with Congressman Don Bacon, which was recorded prior to government social distancing efforts in response to the COVID-19 virus outbreak. The highest level I need to be for that day, and unless I'm going door to door, that's what I just wear. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So, okay, so you, I mean, you're you're not originally from Nebraska, right? I was a farm kid from central Illinois, Kankakee County, actually. Okay. And corn, soybeans, beef cattle. I joined the Air Force when I was 21, got out at 51, but I had three assignments at Offutt Air Force Base, and it, and it was our favorite locations. So that's how we ended up out here. So, I mean, growing up, though, what was what was it like? What was life like? Well, you know, I had a, uh, we were on a fairly good farm. We had four houses on the farm. My grandparents were in one. We lived in one. My uncle and aunt, who I was very close to, I actually worked for for my childhood. I lived there. My aunt moved in there when I was a teenager in the fourth house. So it was really a family farm, and I worked on the farm every summer until I joined the Air Force. And it really, was, it, to me, it was a blessed childhood. I loved working with my uncle, and I learned a lot about how to take care of equipment. I, you know, I disked, I planted, I did everything on the farm but combine, baled hay four times a year. I really think it was a good childhood, and I was very close to my family, yeah. and, I, and that was the maybe the thing I liked most. It's got to be hard that. work, right? Hard work, but I didn't know any better. If that's all you know, it's all relative. I was put in charge when I was like nine years old of scooping the horse manure. And I was the oldest of nine kids in my family over time. And so you, you learn a lot. It's easier to scoop horse manure when you do it every week and, and you keep up on it. You let it go for a month, it gets worse. I bet. There's a valuable lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> you said you're oldest of nine? Yes. So, my dad remarried. Okay. So we had you know, some blended family, five and four. Okay, so you, you were in charge then. Everyone's like, all right, let's look up to I Don. I was the oldest. Yeah. I, I don't know if they all looked up to me, though. <laughs> but, like, you, you sort of set some trends, I think, as mm-hmm. the oldest, right? You know, like cultural, like you're bringing maybe some music into the house or mm-hmm. some cultural influences. Yeah, I would say... There was some. I hope I was a positive influence, a little bit of a rubble. I had a motorcycle. And oh, really? Okay. At times, a little bit of a rubble <laughs> here and there. But actually, I would say some of my younger brothers and sisters inspired me. Uh, I got a val- valid Victorian, salute Tutorians, double engineering degree, brothers and sisters. It's impressive. And they were straight-A students. I was more of a B-minus student in high school. <laughs> but I think, actually, I felt pressure to do better because I had some really competitive younger brothers and sisters. And I, I, I felt... It's probably good pressure. It's good to feel like you better. Uh, I don't want to let the family down. <laughs> Were you a competitive kid in general? I, in some areas, I played on the chess team. I, I was a competitive motorcycle. I was competitive on the farm. I wanted mm-hmm. to be the best. Uh, we hired people, you know, brought in people, summer help. I always want, I wanted to 
my uncle, my grandfather to think of me as the best kid, uh, the best worker of all. So I was competitive there. But I really didn't get competitive professionally until 21. Uh, when I, I went to Oscar Training School. I did, didn't do well, barely graduated out of that. I had the most demerits at 250, 250 <laughs> kids. Uh, but something clicked. I, I really wanted to prove myself because, I, like I say, I had brothers and sisters doing well. I went to intelligence school with 40 students and graduated number one. And then I was top grad of my electronic warfare school, distinguished graduate of NAV school, distinguished graduate of Air Command Staff College. So something clicked. It there? did click. Yeah. And, but I, I didn't have, you know, I don't know if I was overly confident at that 21 year point because I was sort of a B minus mm-hmm. kind of guy. And I just, I had to prove to myself that I could work hard and, and achieve something. And I give glory to the God too on stuff. You know, I feel like he's, I feel like he's blessed. Yeah, well, so I, I feel like that's probably normal for some people where it's, it's hard when at the point in your life when you're just thrown the most amount of information, you're just not necessarily interested in soaking all of it in. Uh, but like I know for me, even it's like by the time I got to grad school, that's when my GPA really started to get good. It's like, mm-hmm. OK, now, now I'm actually interested in all of this. I actually yeah. want to soak it in. And I feel like once you get into your 20s and almost it's like, I wish I'd listened to a lot of more of this stuff. Instead, right. I was just like, what do I have to do today to get by? Like what great what, mm-hmm. what worksheet do I need to fill out? Instead, it's like I wish I'd paid attention. Well, motivating factor for me younger. I didn't want to let my family down. But to me, that was getting to be yeah. what really wanted me to start getting A's. I met my future wife. I started thinking, hey, what am I gonna? How am I gonna make a living? Uh, do I want to be independent? And I realized, looking at the cost of what houses were and buying a car, how much you have to earn, and I, you know, I felt intimidated. I realized I better give it all I have, otherwise it's gonna, it's, you know, it's gonna be scraping by. And and so, uh, meeting my wife Angie, I've been married now 36 years. Uh, I think probably that raised my game up more than anything. It's just okay. It's time to get serious. Uh, and you had it in you yeah, to right. do it. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were a kid, I mean, was it like, was it a political sort of family? Were you interested in all that? Yeah, both my parents were Goldwater volunteers. Okay. And all four of my grandparents were big Reagan supporters. So my dad would get all these political magazines, uh, Human Events, National Review. I read them in junior high. And so I was, uh, and so I had obviously a DNA that liked this stuff because my other brother, sisters, not as much, but they liked science and math and stuff. But I really liked the political side of this. And so I started, I got really involved with the Reagan campaign locally in 1976 when he lost to Gerald Ford. And uh, then I campaigned for local county candidates, did parades. Uh, I, went to, I graduated out of high school at 16. So when I went to college, I became a young college Republican. I was a pinning page editor for my college paper. I interned for a congressman at 20. So, I, yeah, I had, I, I love this stuff. I, one of my favorite little stories, and I, it sounds a little bra- bragging and, now, but actually, it's going to sound geekish here. Is uh, in eighth grade, Miss Macklin, my teacher, asked a question: Who here knows one of our Supreme Court justices' names? I knew all nine and how they voted, and I could. She, I remember even saying, "This is not. That's a little strange." <laughs> <laughs> I could tell they're the voting blocks. Is that because like you had a family member or like a parent who sort of pushed you into that direction and you just realized you loved it? Or, I mean, where did that start, that passion well, for all both that? my parents talk politics and all four of my grandparents talk politics. They're okay. all yeah. – but I loved it. So I just think I, I ate it up. I breathed it. I was reading it. I read, I pro- I read the newspaper every day at junior high on, uh, multiple magazines, and I found it fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just what I like to do. And so it was sort of my enjoyment reading – was reading what congressman said something silly or what senator or what's the president doing. Uh, you said you were a National Review fan? National Review. And there was the, also a magazine called Human Events that went out of business. I really read that quite. That was my dad's favorite. So I ended up, he would read it and hand it to me. That's how it went. <laughs> were you a William F. Buckley fan? I was. And I, I am. Now, now I, I still get National Review. I get the examiner. I get commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, you know, It's more of a Jewish conservative uh, magazine. But I, re- I think there's... Each of these magazines provide a little bit different information space uh, that, and you put it together, you get a pretty good synergy. And of course, I read the local paper, and I love, I get, I also love military history, so I get military history magazines, I get foreign affairs. So yeah, you're all over the place. I try to read it uh, because I, I like expanding. Like right. I just read some good articles on China yesterday in foreign affairs, and I feel like uh, it rounds you out. Sure, yeah. And like, were you into political philosophy at all? Yeah, I like studying, I studied at Tocqueville. Uh, Locke, uh, Rousseau. I took it in college. I I can't say it was my favorite of the political classes, but um, 
I, I liked all the political classes. It was probably somewhere in the middle when in the. I think I had to take 10 different classes to get my major. And yeah. uh, so I feel like it's useful for people, especially if they're politically inclined to at some point when you're trying to think of like, OK, what do I actually believe? Because it's easy to sort of soak in what's around you or right. what your parents feel like when, when you actually study social contract theory, at least in mm-hmm. some degree, you just think like, OK, state of nature. Why do yeah. we even need a government in the first place? Break it down that far, I think, is helpful for actually sort of stripping up some or building some structures of what right. you think are important. So like, did you ever have that moment where you had to confront, like, all right, what is government even for? Yeah. How do I deconstruct all of it? I think initially listening to Ronald Reagan informed me that we want local government over federal government. And so I sort of bought into that. I also believe that the voters, the citizens are sovereign. Uh, we own our we own the country, the citizens do, and they select representatives, and it should be strictly defined duty. So I, I, I accept that since it's a little young. But, you know, it is, I think it's fun to go back and read then different philosophers to, because I had this bias going in. So I'm not, like I had to teach Socrates and Aristotle at Bellevue University. Oh, really? Okay. And, that to re, and you could tell Aristotle was way ahead of his time. Yeah. Divided government and all those things. Socrates was not that way at all. Uh, so I, it was sort of interesting to read that. And then you read Locke. We should have all, we want all of our rights, but you got to have some kind of protection. So you give some of it to government to protect you. That makes t- a lot of sense in hindsight when as I look back and read the the theories based on reality I think I got a view of reality today and then you read these theories you go yeah that that theory aligns much better than Rousseau's by the way <laughs> if you ask me do you ever do Hobbes a little bit yeah you don't want to be in a Hobbesian world Hobbes is pretty down a yeah. little of a dog-eat-dog world uh, <laughs> I could could pass but you know I got a spiritual uh, background too I think there is a there, there's a creator who's given us a roadmap how to live and so so I I think Humans left to their own devices are probably more Hobbesian, uh, but I, I also think there's a bright light that keeps us from going there. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the problem with Hobbes, I feel like a lot of people can agree about Hobbes' state of nature, but then it's also like, I don't know if the conclusion that monarchy is the only way to you know, solve right. that is necessarily the easiest solution. Uh, mm-hmm. It seemed very much a product of its time. But okay, so you got into that stuff. I mean, when does military or joining the military start to be something you're gravitating toward? And my grandmother gave me a, a World War II book when I was 10 years old. I still have it. And I must have read that thing 20 or 30 times. So I like, well, I like politics. But I also love military history. I love reading about MacArthur and Eisenhower. Uh, I love General Grant. And I, so I studied World War II, World War I, Civil War. I've gone to every Civil War battle site, I think, and toured it. Korean, Vietnam. So I, I had a, obviously just had a natural liking towards military history. And when I was 21, I was working with a Youth for Christ counselor. Just He was a good friend of my dad. And he goes, Don, what do you want to do? And I go, I'm not sure. I was already graduated for a year. I graduated at 20. So I'm not too sure. I'm working odd jobs. He says, Don, I've been talking to you now for six, eight months. You love military stuff. You ought to join the Air Force. He was an Air Force retired guy, then a Youth for Christ. But he was a fighter pilot. In the, and uh, and I, it just clicked. I go, yeah, you're right. Uh, that's what I was meant to do. So I talked to my new wife, and I signed up the next day. That's a big decision to make. I mean, was that a hard? It wasn't hard for you. It just felt natural. It felt. Well, I, I realized I like reading this stuff and I enjoy it. I wasn't. I didn't have the discipline or the bearing, but I I had the aptitude for the history and the leadership part of it. And uh, but yeah, my, my wife and I talked, and we were you know being raised on the farm and rural, not seeing the world for the most part. I mean, I did some travel. She hadn't traveled much at all. Uh, I said, man, this is a chance to see the world, learn a skill serve our country. I was just immediately, suddenly just clicked. And she wanted to see the world. So when I went through uh, Intel school, they said the top two or three grads will get their choice. So I worked hard to be number one grad. And I put on my dream sheet, anywhere overseas, I don't care. I want to see the world. I, but I didn't want to say Germany or that because I'm afraid it would make it too hard. Anywhere overseas, I don't care where. They gave us Omaha, Nebraska. That's <laughs> how so we ended up out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Omaha, I mean, definitely has a reputation for, like, people who've never been to Nebraska, it's always kind of funny to hear. They're like, so do you guys just, like, do you have electricity? What's it like there? And, I mean, so uh, I don't know where, you, I mean, you probably had a, a, not quite that stereotypical of a view, but you come here, and what were the expectations like? And well, what you, was hear the, the, you hear the corn huskers. Yeah. So I'm thinking lots of cornfields, right? And I was raised in a, I mean, I was surrounded by corn and soybeans. And we thought it's going to be very much like what we were used to. And we were wanting to, you know, to see Europe and Asia. And, but we were so pleasantly surprised. We come out here, and it is an agriculture-based economy. But Omaha, 
has such economic diversity and, and opportunity. And I was in the Rust Belt in Illinois. I was only farming. I was all with, you had farms and bars and churches, right? That's why. That's how I remembered it. But you come out here and you got a great transportation industry, agriculture industry, financial and banking. I mean, you just keep going on and there's so many choices. So it was apparent to me that this was truly the land of opportunity right here in Omaha and great Midwestern values where people treat you well. And so we fell in love with it right away. Thought it was a blessing. You know, one of those things that we we, we didn't know to ask, but God gave it to us. <laughs> and so then we liked so much, we, we came back three times, and that's where we retired. How long were you in the military for then? Uh, 30, just shy of 30 years. So I came in at 21, got out of 51. And what, I mean, what were some of the highlights of that 30 years then? Well, I commanded off at Air Force Base, which I loved. Favorite job I ever had. Uh, you know, the 55th Wing has seven different type aircraft. And they also have a nuclear command and control mission. And we support STRATCOM, though I don't run STRATCOM in that capacity. But I love the flying operations and the nuclear command control, the people that run the base, the maintainers, the cops, the CE. I, I love being out in the field. And, so, and that's why it was a passion. And you, I mean, it sounds like you were very, very successful in trying to, like, you know, move up high, higher up the ladder. You know, we were, uh, we got inspected. They said it was the highest morale of any base they inspected in a year and a half. And so I, that's, and we had the best medical and dental operations in the entire military. So those are pretty good uh, kudos to get out of inspections. I also commanded a base in Germany, Ramstein. And, and there I, you know, there was a whole different problem set that we had to work on. Um, but I commanded a base and I was the mayor, the act, like the acting mayor of 55,000. So I was a colonel at that point, And that was a great opportunity. I also did missile defense in Israel, helped stand up long range missile defense. I'm very proud of that. And it's given me appreciation of what the Israelis have to defend against, and I'm very pro-Israeli in my, my beliefs, and I take, I've taken that to Congress. Well, so, I mean, you seem like you're ambitious in a lot of ways, or it's like once that clicked for you, that ambition has gone to a lot of different, it's taken you to a lot of different places, to a lot of different positions. I mean, so the skills that you needed to get to that point, I mean, you, it sounds like maybe you were kind of like a geeky politics kid, you know, interested in military history. It's like not necessarily... People like that don't always have the people skills to be able to get to where they need mm-hmm. to go. So, I mean, how did you develop into somebody who could manage things to figure out how to accomplish some of your goals? There is IQ and EQ. And I do think that EQ is something that's under uh, – I don't think it's maybe it's appreciated. The ability to meet with people, to work with them, uh, to care, to have empathy, I think is uh, – I, I don't know how well you can train it, but you got to – some, some of it's more natural, but you got you got to learn learn it too. But to be a good commander in the military, uh, I think it takes a lot of EQ to bond with people to understand. Uh, I always you know I always wanted to be in a unit that the junior ranking folks loved would have pride to be in it. And so I would say competitiveness tr- driven me. I wanted to be the best unit, whatever I, I commanded five times. I wanted to always have the number one, the best command that I could possibly make. And I didn't like coming in second. Um, but to do well, you know, it's it can't be commander-driven. It's got to be people-driven. It's got to be mission-driven because people in the military want to do something important. So the mission is vital. So it's a, it's a blend of this mission and loving people. That also means having high standards because and if you people, they want to know that you care for them. But if you don't have high standards, then the morale goes down too. So it's a combination of mission, demanding excellence, but loving who you work with. And they need to, and folks need to sense that from you. They want to know that you respect them, no matter what their rank. So if you, I want that, I want that airman with one stripe to know I value that person just as much as I did that general walking around, that they were just as val- valuable in God's eyes or citizens defending our country. And you, you want people to internalize that, if, if at all possible. That's, that's what I tried to do. So, I mean, was that something where it was like a trial and error to figure out how to do that successfully? More of it was gaining confidence. If you would have told me at 21 I was going to command 8,000 people or do missile defense in Israel, I would have maybe quit because <laughs> I would have been felt ready for it. Uh, I was shy briefer. I, I, I'm an extrovert, but I didn't like speaking in front of people. And so, you know, the, my first unit, I commanded, I led four people as a lieutenant. And I think you get to start developing what's your leadership philosophy. My leadership philosophy starts with my uncle. My uncle was uh, who I worked for on the farm. And he loved the people he worked with him. He listened. He cared. He was not ego-driven, a humble guy that had high values. And I thought that was what a good leader should be. So it was sort of my role model uh, in that. But a lot of it's 
I watched, I watched every boss I ever had, and I read a lot of leadership books, Grant, Eisenhower, I just, and you start thinking, how do I want to be, what do I need to be changed to make, to make myself better? And I was in that, I was in that uh, mindset for 30 years. What do I do well? What do I need to do better? How do I improve? I always try to learn, learn from other people. And so, okay, you say you're an extrovert. Mm-hmm. Was that, have you always been an extrovert? Yes, uh, to a fault. <laughs> what were some of the times where that got you in trouble? Well, I learned that you don't need to say the first thing on your mind. <laughs> and that's what used to get me in trouble at officer training school. Yeah. I was a 21-year-old, and along, you got these boot, boot, the drill, the drill sergeants-like kind of people. And I would say something I'm like, why did, okay, okay, here's my first day. O.T. Bacon. I go, yeah. No, it's yes, sir. No, sir. And I go, okay. That got me in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, messed up the first two words. Yeah, I was right. I couldn't even get yes, sir, no, sir right. Right? But I've, I learned that be thoughtful. And I've, I've hopefully I'm doing a better job of that. And now I've got to be really good at it, especially when you're talking with media and on radio. Well, here, you can mess up here anytime. <laughs> I'm no pressure. But. but I just think that it's important to, I'm an extrovert. But you got to know what you're saying and thought about it. And you see people get in trouble all the time. I mean, we see Joe Biden and, and you know, or however, if we have lots of examples where people are putting fur, foot in mouth. And it doesn't feel good when that happens. It, it hurts. I guess even while you're in military, as you're getting to the end of it, uh, did you know that you had political ambitions specifically? I sure did. I About two years before I retired, I was a one star. And I was eligible for a second star. In fact, I was investigating the f- fatality of four of our airmen in Afghanistan. But, you know, I was away from home for a month and a half, and I was praying at night, and I just felt the Lord lead me. I got something else for you. I knew it was going to be politically oriented, but I didn't know what it would be. And so I remember going back after I was done with this investigation, I talked to my three-star boss, and he was also an active believer, and I went to church with him. So, I mean, I knew him pretty well. His name's Bob Otto. We called him Automatic. That was his call sign. But but he agreed to let me retire early. Uh, so I retired uh, a little early than I needed to as a one-star, and I came back here. And my intention was just to see where an opening was at, where I could fit in. I thought it could be city council, maybe even a county chairman. Right? I wasn't sure where it would be. I said, I'm just going to get involved, and I'll see what doors are open or where I can make a difference. Because I'm not into competing against uh, someone I, I agree with. Sure, I'm yeah. interested in finding where can I fill a, a gap and make a difference. That was my mindset. And I, the day I retired, I gave a speech for Lee Terry. He was 16-year incumbent, and mm-hmm. I fully expected him to win, was, you know, because he'd been in 16 years. He was my congressman when I was the commander at the base, so I knew him. So I gave a speech, and I got involved for a, a week before that election, because I retired on 1 November of four, uh, 14. And a week later, he lost. And so almost a, two weeks after I retired, I went from not, ha- not knowing where I could maybe fit in to people are saying, hey, this is an— Maybe you ought to consider running for District 2 Congress. And I, th- I thought it was probably a little too high of a hurdle to jump going from uh, military right into running for Congress. So it took me about two months to get my brain right on that before I agreed to do it. But, I mean, you, it seemed like you do have a, a history of that where it's mm-hmm. almost like aiming really high is something that you've become accustomed to. And you're just like, well, I think I'll try to figure out how to make this work. And so, I mean, what, what was that two months of convincing yourself to jump in? A lot of prayer. Yeah. Uh, I'll go from retirement to run for Congress. I was thinking all along, maybe a city council, maybe state, maybe state senate, or unicameral. That's a, I thought that was maybe a little bit far reach <laughs> myself. But I, did, I didn't. I did not ever once think about running for Congress soon after retiring. I just didn't enter my brain. One, I knew Lee Terry, and I wanted to help him out or support him. But I, that two months was really praying. Am I up to it? Uh, do, is this the right thing? Is my family up to it? Because you get, you get put under the microscope, you get attacked. I also worried about fundraising. I knew I was going to have to raise a lot of money. This is a competitive seat. One of the 55 seats that drives the majority of the House is right here. If you win the majority of those 55 seats, you're the majority. Now, we right. lost a lot of them in 18. Um, thankfully, we won. But I just knew it was going to be a lot of, I knew it was going to be 14, 15 hours a day for a year and a half of giving everything I had. And you're going to be attacked and put in the microscope. I mean, am I ready for it? And it took me two months to really get to that point to say, yes, I am. So, I mean, was, was there a moment, though, or was it just gradual over those months? Yeah, I think uh, it was family saying, Don, uh, uh, there's a great verse in the Bible, don't be anxious, but trust in the Lord. And if you're feeling led to do this, this is, this is what, what you're intended to do. To do. 
also I I prayed a lot too about the fundraising. I would have people come up, business leaders in Omaha, and say, "Don, we want to support you." And it was reassuring that I wasn't doing this by myself. And and also my wife, you know, we've been married at that point thirty three years or so. She goes, "Don, I've known you since you're eighteen. This is what you were meant to do." Stay tuned for more of my conversation with Congressman Don Bacon after this quick break. The Flatwater Film Festival is an annual event committed to bringing together established and first-time filmmakers from across the state of Nebraska to celebrate their art. The Flatwater Film Festival was created with the sole purpose of celebrating Nebraska filmmakers by providing a non-competitive platform that showcases their work to develop a strong community that promotes inspiration and support and ultimately to foster the next generation of Nebraska filmmakers. This year, the festival will be held at the historic Rivoli Theater in downtown Seward, Nebraska on October 2nd through 4th. If you are a filmmaker and you are making a movie or you have something that you want to submit, they are currently taking submissions. So head on over to filmfreeway.com slash flatwaterfilmfestival and submit today. If you're just joining us, this is my conversation with Congressman Don Bacon right here on Riverside Chats, which was recorded prior to government social distancing efforts in response to the COVID-19 virus outbreak. What do you want to make your key themes? That was pretty easy for me. I came out of the military. Our, our military was hurting. We cut the military 18% from its 2010 budget while we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were, we had, when I came in uh, in January 17, half the Navy aircraft couldn't fly. We have 58 combat brigades in the Army. Only three could fight tonight, we call it. That's how they say it, fight tonight. Three out of 58. And so that's just a couple examples, and there's a lot more. And I wanted to restore our national security. That motivated me. And I wanted to have an economy that was competitive. You know, the corporate tax rates at the time uh, were 35%. The world's average was 21%. And to me, how do you compete when we are putting our businesses at a disadvantage? I want American businesses to win in a global economy. And so we create more jobs, create more wealth here. But our, our economics, uh, our tax laws, and our regulatory policies undermined our competitiveness. So those were the couple of things that motivated me. I'm pro-life, uh, too. And, and so I, those are my messages. And I think we've made some great strides in those areas when I, <laughs> that I campaigned on in 16. So, I mean, in terms of that, though, so, you, I mean, you've been a lifelong Republican, I assume? Yes. And so as far as that goes... How much, I mean, you go from like, okay, so when you're off to the side, you're thinking about these, these are sort of the things that I believe in. These are maybe some of the strides I'd like to take. But then also you just have to work within the framework of the party where they're, right. I mean, and then there's also the logistics. Like I know my mm-hmm. understanding is a lot of actual policy comes from the end. There's like policy projects. And so mm-hmm. it's like you figuring out how to go from your overall goals to the logistics of actually writing legislation and all of yeah. that seems like its own hurdle. And then also it does seem like, I don't know if there's been specific issues where there's been any confrontation as far as that goes, but like the national party might not be exactly in line with what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, was there a learning curve as far as that goes and learning how to be effective within those parameters? You know, my core views matched the parties pretty well. You know, strong defense, competitive tax policy, pro-life. But as I've now gone on my fourth year, there are areas that I think the party needs to do a course correction on. And but this comes with experience. And it, was, and it was areas that I didn't have in the military to, to learn from. So this is stuff I've had to grow. So I'll give you an example, one example of, of multiple. Uh, but I think the party could be more pro-union, for example. Maybe it's pro-American. Not, we don't want to be pro-management or pro-union. We want to be pro-American. We want American workers to uh, have a fair shake. And what I found is a lot of the unions want to be Republican, but they want to know that Republicans care about pipe fitters or electrician work or carpentry and know about and care about their career field. So I've had so many union leaders say, Don, I'm pro-life. I'm, uh, I'm pro-pipeline. I'm, I'm pro-Second Amendment. I just want to know that you care about my, my area. And it's not that they want an unfair advantage. They just want to have a fair shake. And I found uh, we, ended, we ended up having 13 union endorsements in 2018, which is pretty unheard of. We're one of the few Republicans that had that kind of – that's because I've met them. You know, I'll tell you, well, a lot of their core issues, one of them is – Protect our health care. Medicare for all will take away the health care benefits that I've negotiated and some of the best that you could get. And we don't want a Bernie Sanders type taking away our health care. This is union members telling me this, right? And other ones, uh, they're very pro-pipeline, for example. And those are issues right away that are, are conservative Republican positions. So 
I, we have to. I, I've been trying to encourage our party to reach out more to the union side. I think we can compete there, and I think I, I'm part one of those four or five Republicans that are leading the way in the House to do so. And I want to be that voice in, in Nebraska. We we can we can win in this area, and that helps us win elections. I often wonder if the two-party system is more limiting than it is enabling. I mean, do you think that two parties and the limits of just, like, automatically it's polarized? It's like, if I know you're a Republican, I know probably 80% of your views on things is sort of the stereotype, Mm -hmm. or vice versa with Democrats. Is that good for our politics? Well, we've been that way since George Washington almost. We had the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist parties, and then became the Whig, ended up becoming the Federalist and the Democrats. Uh, so now it's evolved to where we're at today. And there's been time, uh, multiple times in our history where we've just been just as polari- polarized. But I would, what I found, why, why it's polarized, if, if the Republicans are winning 60-40 or the Democrats are winning 60-40, the party that's losing is going to mod- moderate to get back to the 50. So it's a natural equilibrium to be almost 50-50. Because if a party is getting trounced, they're going to they're gonna make changes. And they're going to get themselves back into a competitive situation. So I think that the equilibrium is meant to be around 50-50 because parties are competitive, they adjust. So that leads to a more competitive environment because we are truly fighting for the 51%. That's what we've been doing really. Well, the presidential level, we've been competitive ever since FDR. In Congress, it's really been since Newt Gingrich in, you know, 92, I think it was 92, uh, or maybe it was 94 when he came in. And so the parties have been a toss-up ever since then, or the House. The Senate's been competitive really since the 1980s under Reagan. So now it's everything's in this 50-50 mode, and, and it makes it more competitive. Um, when it was a one party in the House, it was less competitive. And, but I don't think it was good either because having democratic rule, I don't think it was uh, – it wasn't the policies I, I – most of us wanted, I think. Sure, so, and I, I get that. But, I mean, at yeah. the same time, it's like, you know, Gingrich, obviously, he likes the idea of wedge issues or mm-hmm. a good way to win elections. Because, yeah, I mean, when it is competitive and it's easier mm-hmm. to identify with your side and not identify with the other side, rather than just have it, like, be mm-hmm. everybody can vote anyway no matter what. Right. I get that from the perspective of the competition mm-hmm. element. I, it does seem like, though, not everybody necessarily agrees 100% with one party's platform mm-hmm. versus another. And it seems like the party platforms, yeah. I mean, like, any party's platform is not dictated necessarily by, like, the state's voters are not right. going to be exactly the same. So you hear sometimes people say maybe it'd be better if there were four, if there were six parties, just because then also yeah. it forces collaboration between different parties because then nobody has a majority. You don't right. think that'd be better? It it may be, but our system's not made for it. We, you know, we have a speaker, a minority leader, a majority leader. If you get a third party, they're going to take away from one, one of the two parties. And you're basically just giving power to the other party. So... You could have, like, I would just say, the Green Party. Is that going to take away from Republicans? No. It's going to take away from Democrats. So, I don't, so any third party getting involved really takes away from one or the other party, by and large. So I'm not sure it really helps. It actually, it just, from my perspective, it's going to give help the party that you don't like the most. So if, I'm on a, if I want to be on the conservative party like they have in New York, that's going to take away from Republicans. Yeah, right? So that. then it helps out the Democrats. I don't know that it really works that way. But this is what I, how I feel to get around it, because I, I do believe in a more bipartisan spirit. So I think maybe a better way to maybe answer your question is in the House, you've got to get 218 votes to pass anything. And what we've been doing lately, if the Republicans are in charge or if the Democrats are in charge, they try to get 218 votes from their party to pass any bill. That means you've got to get a hard left or a hard right bill, because you've got to get 218 from within your 230 of votes that you may have as a, the majority. And that drives for a hard Republican or a hard Democrat bill that has zero chance in the Senate where there's a filibuster and you have to get 60 votes. So I'm a leader of the caucus called the Four Country Caucus. It's 20, Repu- 20 Republicans and Democrats, evenly split. We're veterans. And what we're trying to do is find consensus area because what we've got to start doing is getting 218 votes in the middle where we agree because that's how you, you'll make some differences in immigration or uh, prescription drugs. See, the Democrats passed a prescription drug almost totally on Democrat votes. Has zero chance in the Senate. If we would have got a prescription drug bill out of the middle, like something that I would have done in the Four Country Caucus, that would have been easy to pass out of the Senate. So we got to start changing the paradigm of getting 218 on the left or 218 on the right and get 218 in the middle because that's how we can get change done and get the Senate with its filibuster to agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like the Senate in the polarized element with just the majorities there is not especially productive in general. 
uh, to have it be so based entirely on party. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. the Senate in general is kind of this weird, not entirely democratic, what do I want to say, institution. So it's like, even just by, like, it's not really a you know, population based the same way the House is. So the Senate is sort of mm-hmm. this weird beast in general. I mean, is there a way to make the Senate more functional, in your opinion? Well, the filibuster hurts it because it means you, it's very hard to get 60 votes on immigration policy, prescription drug policy. But if we start passing those 218 vote kind of bills in the middle of the house, from the middle, the moderates in the House, we could probably get the Senate to actually do more. But having a 60 vote threshold to pass legislation means, you know, any minority can stop any bill. And, and so it used to be that the filibuster, I think they went 80 years in the 1800s without a filibuster. For most of the 1800s, there was no filibuster, though it was allowed, uh, it was always there. And, but now we filibuster, every, any bill has, has to get a 60 vote hurdle. That's a change and, and it's made the Senate less effective. It also has hurt us in our checks and balances with the executive branch, you know, the separation of powers. When you have a Senate that can't pass much, that gives more power to the executive branch who then operates with executive orders to get something done because the Congress isn't moving. As far as the executive branch and executive power goes, that seems like that's definitely been you know in the news a lot. I mean, I'd say Obama and Trump both. There's been a lot of issues where that seems to keep coming up. Impeachment, obviously, was something where there were a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. to talk about that. Your, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the general stance you came down on as far as the impeachment went was if there isn't a law being broken, there shouldn't be impeachment proceedings. Generally, maybe not quite that simple. Okay. I, I, I thought he didn't make a wise decision making that phone call, even though I think Biden and his son did wrong. But that's something for us to internally. But to, to engage with the leader of Ukraine on Biden, I thought wasn't wise. And it wasn't, and I knew it would come back to hurt him. If I mean, I heard it, like, that wasn't a wise thing to do. It'll be politicized. And, and, but that's different than being impeachable. Okay. What, I, so, yeah, can we define impeachable? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not. Most people, a lot of people would say if a law was broken, but frankly, the, the founders didn't just limit it to that. So it could be to a level that was just, just so distasteful or an abuse of, of power. that. So there is some leeway that Congress and the Senate has, right? But in this case, I would say the president did not break the law. Uh, in, in the end, that aid went to Ukraine on September 11th, and the law required it by September 30th. Are we going to impeach a president for getting aid 19 days before the law? Now, he did challenge him in, in July and in early September, or I should say August and then early September. But frankly, the, the Ukraine president, nor his staff, really realized that this was being held up on that. Now, he didn't really know it until right before we released the aid. So I just wish to say, I, I don't think the president was wise what he did, but I don't think it was impeachable. And in the end, the aid got there 19 days before the law required. Are we going to impeach on that? I don't think so. The president is in some ways the most powerful person in the country Mm -hmm. and in some ways not as accountable as a lot of people who don't have that much power. Should there be more accountability for the executive branch? Because it almost seems like the president has – any president, I'm not talking specifically about one here, Mm -hmm. but they've got a lot of leeway. They can – essentially abuse power in a lot of ways so long as it doesn't go to that line and Congress gets to draw that line. Whereas, you know, in a lot of places, you know, it's like you can get fired from your job very easily for not breaking the law. Should there be more overall accountability for the president who has so much power? Well, the ultimate accountability is when the voters get a second crack, which are going to be getting that chance this November. That was another problem with the impeachment. We're doing this in December and January. We have an election in November. I think most of our voters in our district didn't think what he did rose to the level of impeachment, but even if even if you had that questionable area, we got an election, you know, like uh, ten months later, and so we had the voters that will have a chance to decide. But to your your overall question, I do think the executive branch has grown a power. Uh, the Congress has not checked the executive branch, and it dates really back, going back twenty thirty years, and it keeps getting worse and worse. Part of it's because it used to be that the congressional you know, whether Senate or House, whether you're Republican, Democrat, really f- work to protect the equities of the Congress. So worried about the, the checks and balances. Today you're seeing more and more of it aligning with their party. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, you know, so I, I reflect on that because I don't think that's healthy. Um, I would be, I was willing to, I mean, I criticized the president for, for making that call. I mean, I was on World, the World Herald. I've been 
Sure. Yeah. I actually surprised people. I was on BBC and I gave them that answer. They said, "Well, we don't know how to we don't know how to answer the ask you the next question. We thought you'd give you the patent answer out there." And, um, but I don't. If it's not impeachable, I mean, the founders want it to be a serious offense to impeach, and I don't think that was we were not even close to that in, in my view. I think it was also was part of the lens to what was going on the previous two years. The previous two years, the Democratic Party were making accusations of collusion on Russia. We have Chairman Schiff saying he had intelligence that would prove Trump colluded with Russia. And he's the intelligence chairman. And so for two years that was going on. And then the Mueller report comes out and said there was no evidence of at least illegal collusion. Uh, so there was nothing there to, to impeach on. Now there was some discussion about, you know, abuse of power trying to, you know, during the investigation, it was a separate issue, but on the collusion part. So I think there was a little bit of this. It seemed like the Democrat leadership were trying to throw anything they can to see what would stick to the wall. You know, you get the chairman, Chairman Nadler, before he's even put in as a chairman saying, make me the chairman because I'm the guy that can impeach Trump. If When you see all that, it seemed like this was just a totally partisan effort by the Democrats towards the president. And there wasn't enough there to impeach. Well, I guess, yeah, like my, my question is ultimately, though, a lot of the times the line specifically when you get to that point is determined by Congress. Mm-hmm. And it, if it's not exclu- exclusively limited to laws being broken, right. then you get to pick that. And if we have a highly polarized, highly mm-hmm. political, you know, political parties often dictate ultimately policy goals, then it's hard to have a whole lot of integrity to that system in general, it seems like. Well, you know, the founders gave 66 votes in the Senate to impeach. That's a high hurdle. And... I think it, it has to be something of such grave nature that crosses that. Now, Watergate would have been there. Uh, there that's why President Nixon resigned, because it, the handwriting's on the wall. There were 66 vote, senators that were going to vote that way, and the House was going to overwhelmingly impeach. That wasn't here. I mean, in the end, we had, five, I think, four Democrats in the House broke from their ranks, and we had one Republican in the Senate. It was, it was going to have to be something more grave to move that needle, which wasn't there. I guess the most cynical question I could ask on this is, is it possible to move the needle or are we so politicized at this point that essentially a Democratic president can pretty much get away with anything if they have the right majorities and vice versa? I believe in working in the middle. That's why I'm in the the caucus chair of the four country caucus. I'm in the problem solvers. I have faith, but I, you know, it is a partisan environment. And I, all I know is I, in the end, I believe it's, I have to start with myself. Uh, what can I be? What, what can I do differently? What can I be? And I try to work across the aisle. I try to be civil. But yet we're in a campaign environment, so you have to still make your position known and, and, and contrast yourself with your opponent. That's, you know, you got to balance that out. Uh, but in the end, I'm going to try to run with and try to reach across the middle to get things done. Sure. Well, yeah. and there's also, I mean, I assume a, a difficult balance to some mm-hmm. extent of you, uh, the district that you represent, is a mixed district. It's not exclusively one or the mm-hmm. other, even, you know, that drastically one way or the other. So, I mean, like, how do you see yourself representing Democrats or independents in the district that you represent? Yeah, I, in a representative government, the candidate puts out the positions he believes in or she believes in, but the values and the and what, and the compass that you want to represent by. And then, you know, the voters vote and they, and they select a candidate. So I feel like I've been elected twice even in, in two blue waves. One was a big blue wave, one was a little blue wave. I was the only Republican to defeat an incumbent Democrat in 16. We lost actually six seats that cycle, a total. And so I've, I feel like part of my promise is to follow my promise or follow my campaign promises and to do what I said I was going to do uh, when, I run, or when I ran. Now that, but I, so that doesn't mean I can represent something I don't believe mm-hmm. on a certain issue. But I do think I should be a good listener on all the issues. And there's some issues I'm not as you know, informed on. So you get out and you, you meet people that have different varying views and try to make the best decision you can. Um, so, but I can't say I'm, like, I'm going to vote the way, the opposite way I campaigned on. That's not going to, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. That's breaking your promises sure. out there. So, but you can find areas that doesn't mean it should be hundred percent one way or the other way. There are issues that the other side brings to the table that can inform our own position, and I hopefully, I think I've done that. I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. I didn't agree with the Pelosi prescription drug plan, but there's other ones I think are very, that are, are close to that, that are, are much better, uh, that where we cap 
prices for those for for those in Medicare, for example. We you get gen- generic drugs on the market more quickly. There are ways that we can do this, but I think that discussion from left and right helps inform for a better decision, and hopefully we'll come up with a much better policy in the end. The, the environment right now is not really geared toward discussion. It's geared toward mm-hmm. like yelling past each other and. You know, I, I feel like debates, even at this point, debates aren't really that helpful because it's almost right. just like a regurgitation of two things that aren't actually in conversation with each other. Right. Um, Maybe it, I could give you a couple examples, though, where I voted where people didn't expect it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I voted for yeah. DACA. Mm-hmm. I thought DACA, and I would say most of my party did not do that, but I, I've met with them. I have voted for TPS. Uh, I have supported Open Skies, a treaty against the wishes of the president. I could give you a, eight or nine different examples and I just didn't get there magically. It was listening uh, right. to both sides. And you know, I think, too, I've listened to folks who didn't vote for me on a couple of bills that I've helped make law. I've had uh, leaders from our community said, Don, we want, you to show your, we want you to show us your leadership on passing an anti-lynching bill. Uh, after 120 years, we got that done, and I, and I was a big voice on that in the House. So in those folks, I don't well, – most of them, maybe one or two voted for me, but most of them didn't. But, they, but I wanted to support them. And right. uh, so I, I do think we represent everybody. But in the end, I ran on a certain set of values. And we try my best to, to institute those as a congressman. Sure. Yeah. And I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you clarifying that. So, you know, in the current socialism de- debate, for example, or like calling like Comrade Eastman or something like that, I feel like it, we get lost a little bit on where the actual disagreement is and mm-hmm. it gets kind of sensationalistic. So I just want to hear from you. So first off, what is your definition, your working definition of socialism? Well, being that I went through uh, school on this stuff, it is the ownership of the means of production. So the state owns the means of production. That is the ultimate definition of socialism. But then a lot of folks say, well, then we're not socialists on the other side. I said, well, no, Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. So it, it's not a debate. He calls himself that. So does AOC. I guess my question with that is, and I've heard it criticized. Mm-hmm. I think Kurt Anderson recently even said something along the lines of he disagrees with them, even identifying themselves that way, where it's just – are we arguing about sort of like an FDR type social program enrollment, mm-hmm. or you know, a, you know, rollout of more social programs in that line? Where do we actually tip into like a Marxist sort of utopia? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's fair to say uh, I'm glad we talked early about the social contract theory because it's like you know, Marx, the whole idea of uh, property is theft is obviously very different than Locke, who says property protection of property is the whole basis of having a government. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are you? I mean, when we call someone like Kari Eastman a comrade or something like that, is that tipping it too much into Soviets as opposed to like a Norwegian sort of style of socialism? Well, we have or? to say Norwe- Norway, Finland, Sweden, perhaps, and so those countries are really a, they're more of a welfare state, mm-hmm. but they're definitely capitalist. Norway, I mean, I've I've been there. I've talked to their I talked to their leader, had dinner at her house, and they are they are capitalists, but they but they can afford things with a country of about five million. I have to double check their population, roughly that. It's a small population, and they have huge oil reserves. They can fund a lot of like the medical pretty easily off the off their oil industry, right? Mm-hmm. So they're in a different realm, but it's those aren't socialist countries. They're welfare heavy welfare countries. There's a difference, but they are a capitalist. They're driven by capitalism and free markets with a heavy tax for welfare. That's different to say Venezuela right now, who they did take over much of the industry in Cuba. And we have to remember where, you know, we'll go back to Bernie Sanders, who calls himself mm-hmm. a democratic socialist, who has made very many comments praising Venezuela, praising Castro, praising Ortega from Nicaragua. I did his honeymoon in, in Soviet Union. But my point is he has... He calls himself that, and he has lived that. Now that's, but I know that's the debate I have with a lot of folks across the aisle. Now we want Norway, and we want we want to be like Norway or whatever, or Scandinavian countries, and those aren't socialists. That's they're they're a heavy welfare. It's a capitalist society. Now they have a high tax, right? I mean, you you if you want to go and have ten dollar glass of milk, that's what you do in Norway, right? But really, they can fund most of their social programs because their oil industry. If in in Norway's case, which is similar to what Alaska does, right? They've got a yeah. They use a lot of their they use a lot of those proceeds that that's why they don't even have to pay a tax in Alaska, or their tax is very low because right. they have a, a the oil industry that can do that. But that doesn't work for the United States for a large of three hundred thirty million. Uh, you know, really to pay for what m- one of my opponents wants to do with Medicare for all. Uh, most most folks who study it say that's going to be three point two trillion dollars a year. 
Now, mind you, we've got a $4.5 trillion budget right now. Can you imagine adding $3.2 trillion to $4.5? That is a total metamorphosis of our government and, and the spending we're going to have. It's about a 70% increase in spending. And so that's how I try to frame, frame that. But you know, going back to the socialist debate, Bernie Sanders says he is. And I've had people tell me, Democrats say, well, he doesn't know what one is then. Well, okay, that's Bernie Sanders calling himself that. I think if he's calling himself that, so can I. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I just, I wonder if we're losing an actual argument that's, mm-hmm. I wonder if it'd be more productive if we had an argument against more of a Norwegian type welfare state, which yeah. that's what I'm seeing. That's my interpretation of what some of the proposals are right. from people calling themselves socialist. And there's, there's a debate area there. I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. Five million people with that big oil industry is an easier solution for some of the higher policies out there or higher welfare policies, we'll say. That's easier to do when you have five million people with uh, huge oil reserves. We're 330 million, and for us to do that, it's going to be a high tax. We can't prop this all up on on our oil, for example. It's, not, it's just not feasible for our country. And so, but that that's a worthy debate area. I, I agree. Okay, we're pretty much out of time here. So just, I mean, mm-hmm. before I let you go, what are the main things you want people to take away about this current election uh, in, in your campaign? I think without my leadership, we would have not been able to fix Offutt Air Force Base and Camp Ashland. Uh, you know, I did, we were able to get $800 million to fully restore both of those bases. And by the way, Offutt's critical to the national security of our country. It also puts in $2.7 billion in the local economy. Uh, we've been able to also get grants for our local roads and local housing for low-income housing. So I, I, I'm proud of that. I've also been able to get things done that local supporters wanted anti-lynching bill, the Holocaust education bill that for 20 years we've been trying to pass. I hope, I love the Republican efforts on that. And I can give a lot of examples in that area. Now, nationally, a lot, because a lot of people are going to vote that way as well, I think my voice has been outsized for fixing our military. And I think people want a strong national security, and I think I've led the way for national security. And then you look at low-income folks are seeing the highest wage increases in a free market system uh, that we've had in 20 years, uh, over the double rate, 2.5 times the rate of inflation, a higher rate than the highest income earners. So that's the best way to fight poverty. I think we've, we're making progress on trade, which is critical for Nebraska. I've been a leader on that. Energy, this is something that the young folks care about. So I'm going to tell you, we are now the largest energy producer in the world. We're exporting energy, and yet we have cut carbon emissions more than the next 12 countries combined. So these are just some of the national issues that I'm proud of. Absolutely. And I thank you so much. I'm really appreciative of you mm-hmm. taking time out of your schedule to come and do the show today. I loved it. Thank you. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarbon Creative. Our music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. We'll be back next week with a conversation with congressional candidate Ann Ashford. I'm Tom Noblock, and I want to thank you for listening.